Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. The month of December is always one filled with certain elements. Preparation, anticipation, tidings of comfort and joy, and no matter how old, jaded, or bah humbug you might be any other month of the year, there's always at least the tiniest bit of magic in the air. Personally, my favorite part of December is the anticipation of it all. I love carefully plotting out the gifts I plan to give to my loved ones, leaning in hard to the coziness of a New England winter, revisiting years-old traditions like visiting a particular cheese shop here in Rhode Island to fuel my family and I during the night we decorate my parents' tree, and, of course, basking in that mix of wonder and calm that arrives on Christmas Eve and carries throughout into Christmas Day. I'm an October girl through and through, but you've got to give it to December. It's got style all its own. I don't know how Christmas is done in Texas, but even without crisp snow crunching underfoot, I have to imagine it's done and feels much the same. Maybe that same sense of giddy anticipation is what coursed through Rachel Tralisa on the morning of December 23rd, 1974, just two days before Christmas. All of the feelings and fervor would have been coming to a head then. Gifts to wrap, family to see, another year to celebrate. She was probably looking forward to the mini-girls trip the day held, a trip out to Seminary South Shopping Center with her longtime friend Renee Wilson. Sure, nine-year-old neighbor Julie Mosley had managed to finagle her way into their plans, but even still, Christmas was in the air, and it's hard for anything to truly dampen that resilient thing called Christmas spirit. Except... Those three girls never saw Christmas 1974. After December 23rd, those three girls were never seen again. They say you're supposed to find joy in the holidays, but in 1974, all anyone wanted to find was the girls who had become known as the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. When the end of 1974 arrived, I'm sure most people of the day and age would agree. It had been a hell of a year. The country watched as the Patty Hearst scandal played out all throughout the calendar year. They watched as Muhammad Ali reclaimed his heavyweight title during the Rumble in the Jungle. And they watched as Richard Nixon delivered his resignation speech, with Gerald Ford ascending the presidency the very next day. It had been a hell of a year. Most of us in 2020, I think, can probably relate to that feeling. So when December and its holiday season arrived, no doubt everyone was excited to focus on lighter, happier affairs. No doubt that was what was on 
Mary Rachel Trelisa's mind as the day laid out ahead of her on Monday, December 23rd, 1974. In 1974, Rachel, as she preferred to be known, using her middle name instead of her first name, Mary, was 17 years old. She stood about 5'6 and was slim, weighing only 108 pounds. She had long brown hair tinged with streaks of honey blonde and had green eyes that often peeked out from under her long lashes. She had a beautiful smile with a distinctive slightly chipped front tooth and a small scar on her chin. She also, it should be noted, sported a wedding band. In December 1974, 17-year-old Rachel had been married for just about six months to 21-year-old Tommy Trelisa. Though Rachel was still in high school, she apparently wasn't the only married student at Southwest High School, and it was, as they say, a different time. Tommy had been married once before, and he had a two-year-old son with his first wife, a little boy Rachel is said to have doted on and treated like her own. Again, though she was only 17, Rachel and Tommy had a home of their own, one they shared with Rachel's older sister, Deborah Arnold. Deborah was two years older than Rachel, and she was 19 years old at the time of her younger sister's disappearance. The Arnold household, according to Deborah, was said to have been tense. Their father was known to be domineering, and his behavior allegedly delved into abuse towards his family, which included Rusty, the two girls' younger brother, who was 11 in 1974. Because of the strained energy at the family home and after breaking up with her live-in boyfriend, Rachel had invited Deborah to live with her and Tommy. A kind, sisterly thing to do, on the surface. It reads a little stranger when you learn that Tommy Trelisa, it seemed, had a thing for the Arnold girls. He and Deborah had dated before he and Rachel got together, and it's been reported that Deborah and Tommy were engaged for a period of time. In the years since, Deborah has stated that her relationship with Tommy was never very serious, despite the presence of an engagement ring in their relationship. Deborah has even gone so far as to say that the engagement wasn't a real engagement, whatever that means. By all public accounts, though, there was no awkwardness or animosity between the three in their slightly unconventional home. That morning, though, Rachel invited Deborah to go shopping with her at the Seminary South Shopping Center. It was later known as the Fort Worth Town Center, but these days, the center has since been renamed and rebranded to La Grande Plaza de Fort Worth. Her older sister declined. She claimed that she was tired and wanted to indulge in a bit of a lie-in that morning. Likewise, the girl's mother also turned down the invitation. Their father was sick that day, so she was tending to him and didn't want to leave him alone. Undeterred, Rachel then called her longtime friend, Lisa Renee Wilson. The two girls shared a friendship and a particular habit. They both preferred to go by their middle names. The Arnold family and the Wilson family had known each other for years, and though Renee was 14 years old to Rachel 17, the two were said to be very close, even best friends. 
Similarly to Rachel, Renee had brown hair, though hers was tinted with streaks of auburn and red. She was 5'2", shorter than Rachel, and weighed 110 pounds. Her brown eyes were said to give away her mischievous nature, and she had a penchant for one of the biggest trends at the time, those hip-hugging, bell-bottom pants. That day, Renee was staying at her grandmother's house since her mother had a shift at her job working at a dry cleaner's. And when Rachel called to invite her for an afternoon of shopping, she hesitated for only a few minutes. Across the street from Renee's grandmother lived the Mosley family. And the Mosley family had a 15-year-old son, Terry. Terry and Renee had also grown up knowing each other, but their friendship had recently taken a romantic turn. Just that morning, Terry had gone across the street, woken up Renee, and surprised her with a gift, a promise ring. Speaking to reporter Tamara Gain from Medium, Terry recalled the ring that he had given to Renee that morning. Quote, I believe it had dolphins, a favorite. Bought it at Seminary South Shopping Center, too. She loved it. Renee, no doubt, was thrilled with how her morning was turning out, and she'd wanted to spend time with Terry before Rachel called her with her invitation. However, when Renee asked if Terry wanted to join the girls, he declined. Quote, she wanted me to go with her, Terry told Medium in an interview. Quote, I backed out at kind of the last minute because a friend of mine was going to go to the hospital to have an operation, and I told him I would hang out with him. I didn't really want to renege on that. Someone else, though, was willing to take Terry's place. Terry wasn't the only child of the Mosley family. He had two younger sisters, 11-year-old Janet and 9-year-old Julie. Renee extended the invitation to Janet after Terry had declined, but she too turned down the offer. She had plans to hang out with another friend that day. It was then that 9-year-old Julie saw her chance. I can imagine little Julie sidling up to her older brother's cool girlfriend that morning, asking if she could be the one to join the shopping trip after everyone else had declined. She was nine, so she was a tiny little thing, only four foot three and barely 85 pounds soaking wet. And because she was nine, she had a number of distinctive scars, probably from classic rough housing on the playground. There was one under her left eye, another scar on her forehead, and yet a third, larger and more noticeable one on the back of one of her calves. She had sandy blonde hair and no doubt used her big blue eyes to her advantage, maybe even doing so that morning, begging Renee to let her join, saying she couldn't bear the idea of having to spend the day all alone. The older girls, however, weren't buying what Julie was selling. Who wanted to babysit a nine-year-old all day, keeping an eye on this little tag-along? Terry backed up this idea, saying that, quote, I know Renee and Rachel didn't want Julie to go because she was only nine years old. Quickly, Rachel and Renee devised a plan. Renee was familiar with the Mosley family, and she knew Rayanne, Mrs. Mosley, was a no-nonsense type of woman. There was no way she would agree to let Julie crash their girls' afternoon, especially since Rayanne didn't really know Rachel, who would be driving. 
The plan was this. The girl said that Julie could join them only if she got express permission from her mother that it was all right. With that stipulation, Rachel and Renee no doubt thought that they had outsmarted little Julie. Rayanne was working that morning, but remembered well the phone call she received from her youngest that day. Speaking to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram in 2000, she recalled, quote, I was working for an electrical contractor, and my husband and I were separated. It was a bitter, bitter time. I remember that Julie called and wanted to go to Seminary South. I said, no, you don't have any money. You just stay home. I knew Renee and her mother, but I really didn't know Rachel. But Julie kept whining about how she wouldn't have anybody to play with. I finally gave in, but I told her to be home by six. The girls were stunned, as was Terry by the Mosley matriarch's uncharacteristic behavior. Terry apparently overheard the phone call his sister placed, and he said, quote, Julie got our mom on the phone and begged and begged to go. And for some reason, this time she said okay. Our mom knew Renee well since I was in a relationship with her. Rachel and Renee had been outsmarted, it appeared. Without a plan B, they agreed. Little Julie could come. But they planned to be back earlier than 6 p.m. Rachel had plans to attend a Christmas party that night with her husband, Tommy, and Renee had been invited to attend a dinner of her own that night, on Terry's arm. Since it would be the first time that she would be publicly wearing her promise ring, she was adamant that she wanted to be home by 4 p.m. in order to give herself plenty of time to get ready and look her best. So with that, the plan was set. At just after 12 p.m., Rachel arrived at Renee's grandmother's house on Gordon Avenue. She drove a 1972 Brown Oldsmobile 98, though there was nothing old about it. It was a boat of a car with a long hood and a long trunk, the classic car one often thinks of when reminiscing on the 70s. Clambering into the car that afternoon, Renee was said to be wearing, quote, bluish purple hip hugger pants, a white pullover sweatshirt with sweet honesty in green letters, red and white Oxford shoes, and a promise ring with a single clear stone. Renee's outfit in particular stood out to people that day. The sweet honesty phrase was something many witnesses later remembered seeing splashed across her shirt, though some have reported that it wasn't a sweatshirt that had those words written across it. Others have said Renee's shirt of choice was, quote, pale yellow t-shirt with green letters. Nonetheless, those letters saying, sweet honesty. Julie, I'd put money on this, was probably forced to sit in the back seat as the youngest and as the tag-along. But I bet she did so happily, just content to be joining the older girls, basking in their coolness. She was said to be wearing, quote, a red shirt with dark pants or possibly jeans and red tennis shoes. We don't know much about what Rachel was wearing, except that she had, as she always did, her wedding band, securely around her left ring finger. As it was, the three girls, once situated into Rachel's car, took off from Gordon Avenue. 
with the Seminary Shopping South Shopping Center as their destination for an afternoon of shopping, Christmas spirit, and girl time. Maybe with their windows rolled down a little, it was Texas after all, even in December, maybe Rachel fiddled with the radio, wanting to land on some Christmas music as Renee filled her in on her morning with Terry and showed off her new promise ring. Maybe Julie chimed in on occasion, or maybe she sat quietly, not wanting to ruin her good fortune at being allowed to hang out with the big girls. Maybe, maybe, maybe. What we do know is that as the car turned off of Gordon Avenue, it would be the last time those three girls were seen in that car. It would be one of the last times any of those girls were seen again. Because of the nature of one particular element of this story, a lot of the details about the events of the afternoon of December 23rd, 1974, have been lost to that same element. Time. This December marks 46 years since Rachel, Renee, and Julie were last seen, and much of the particulars about that day have become muddled, fuzzied, or otherwise faded into that oblivion of tenuously held memories. It makes this case particularly troublesome, since so many small, crucial insights and details have either receded to the backs of minds or have died with the people who once held them. But time was also a key component of that Monday in December because it was time that first alerted the families of Rachel, Renee, and Julie that something was wrong. The first stop of the day for the girls was at a local Army-Navy surplus store where either Rachel or Renee had some items on layaway. Some news outlets have reported that Rachel was picking up a series of gifts, while others have stated that it was Renee who wanted to go to the Army-Navy store in order to finally finish purchasing a pair of bell-bottoms that the store had been holding on layaway for her. Layaway, for those who aren't aware, is a practice where a store will agree to keep a particular item on hold for a customer who can't pay the full price at the time. Some of these agreements call for the customer to pay a certain percentage of the total cost, and other versions agree to let the customer request the item simply to be held while they pay. Over a period of weeks, the customer will pay installments of the cost, and once they finish paying, the item is finally theirs. It's a system that started back in the Great Depression, but it's not used as regularly these days with the onset of credit cards and Klarna-type systems of payment for online shopping. Regardless, once the girls finish their errands at the Army-Navy store without any report of an incident, they finally headed to their main destination, Seminary South Shopping Center. Seminary South had been open for about 12 years at the time, originally cutting their grand opening ribbon in the spring of 1962. Malls were still a bit of a novelty at the time, and they were nowhere near as run-of-the-mill as they are today. It was only in the 50s and 60s that they really started to take off, though the concept of shopping malls has dated back to the Middle East and their public shopping bazaars. Fun fact, the first shopping arcade, the 
as one might say, OG Mall of America, as it were, was opened in 1828, right here in Providence, through the aptly named Arcade. To be considered a mall, an establishment has to have at least two anchor stores. Anchor stores are usually the largest stores in the mall, often due to there being a large department store or a popular chain. Think Macy's, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, and the like. For Seminary South, the two anchor stores in question were most likely J.C. Penney, which arrived at the mall in 1964, and the Sears Department Store, which had opened with the mall in 1962. Perhaps it was Sears itself that drew Rachel to the mall originally, because when they arrived, they took the no-doubt twists and turns through the mall parking lot, scouring for a spot, and finally arrived at one in one of the upper lot levels, designated to be in an area for Sears shoppers. It's here, once again, where we are only left with vague reports and minimal details about what took place inside the mall that day. We don't know for certain which stores the girls browsed through, where they bought presents, or if something out of the ordinary befell them while wandering through the shopping plaza. What we do know for certain is this. Several people, witnesses, saw the girls that day, thanks to Renee's distinctive phrase on the shirt she wore. Sweet honesty stuck out to a lot of people inside Seminary South that day, even if no one can fully agree whether it was splashed across a t-shirt or emblazoned on a sweatshirt. It's believed that at some point during the afternoon, the girls returned to the Oldsmobile to drop off some of their purchases before heading back into the mall and the throng. After that, no one can say for certain what exactly happened. Renee's adamant stance that she had to be home by 4 p.m. may have been what sounded the alarm for the three families when the three girls didn't return home by then. Worry, understandably, blossomed. Maybe Rachel's Oldsmobile had broken down somewhere. Maybe there had been a car accident. Maybe the girls were waiting for help on the side of the road along the route to the mall. Or maybe they had simply lost track of time. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But when 5 p.m. came and went, and when 6 o'clock approached, worry turned to panic. By now, the families had gathered, cross-referencing their stories with each other and realized that something, though they didn't know what, something was wrong. The three families decided to head to Seminary South themselves, carefully keeping an eye out along the way to see if Rachel's brown boat of a car and the three girls would be seen on the side of the road, perking up when they finally realized that someone had come to their aid. No familiar Oldsmobile and no familiar smiles were seen on any of the street corners or breakdown lanes, though. Two days before Christmas at a shopping mall, is a verifiable nightmare. Add three missing young girls and a missing car to boot, and you've got a logistical clusterfuck. It was at approximately 6 p.m. when the Oldsmobile 98 was finally found, though, right where the girls seemed to have left it, parked in the same spot, just outside of Sears, in an upper lot. 
The car was also locked, and for good reason. Scattered across the back seat were several bags of what appeared to be unwrapped presents, receipts, and even one wrapped gift. One that would later be identified as a gift Renee had brought for Rachel to give to her toddler stepson. So it was clear. The girls had come back to the car at some point. But now, however, there was no sign of the girls. The three families divided up and began a search of their own. Rusty Arnold remembers his mother, Fran, holding his hand as she doggedly entered every single store inside the mall, looking for her daughter and two friends. She would approach sales associates asking if they'd seen them, and she ultimately wound up in front of the mall manager, asking them to make an announcement over the loudspeaker system to see if the girls were somewhere in the mall. The girls didn't answer or appear. As Fran and Rusty wound their way through the mall, other family members began searching for the girls at other nearby locations and making phone calls. They called hospitals. They called mutual friends. They called anyone that they could think of, anywhere they could think of. Have you seen Rachel? Have you seen Renee? Have you seen Julie? No one had. It was finally at 11 p.m. that night, five hours after the brown Oldsmobile had been located still inside the mall parking lot, that the local police received a call. Three girls had vanished. The Fort Worth Police Department headed to the scene, listening intently to the tale related to them by the Arnolds, the Wilsons, and the Mosleys, as well as Tommy Trelisa. Then they offered their opinion. The girls, obviously, had run away. They quickly handed the case over to the Missing Persons Bureau and bid the gobstruck families good night. They'd be sure to connect with them in the morning. This, also, obviously, didn't sit well with any of the families. Something was wrong, desperately, confoundingly wrong. Of course their girls didn't run away. In a 1982 feature with the Victoria Advocate, Renee's mother, Judy Wilson, scoffed again at the police's original assertion that the girls had decided to skip town. Quote, I could have told you that night that they didn't run away. Renee wanted to go to that party, and no nine-year-old is going to run off two days before Christmas. Everybody knows that. And of course... Thinking further into the girl's behavior that day, it made even less sense. Rachel had called several people to join her for the shopping trip. Why would she have asked her older sister, and much less her own mother, to join her for a day of shopping if she had planned, ultimately, to run away? Rachel and Renee each had plans that night that they were excited to go to, so why would they feign such excitement if they had actually been plotting some sort of escape? And of course, one of the most obvious questions, why the hell would you allow a nine-year-old to tag along with you if you had grand plans to abandon your life? Nothing about the police's belief that Rachel, Renee, and Julie had run away made any sense. And in considering those questions, the panic the families had felt seep into their bones 
grew quickly into something else. Dread. I can't imagine how the rest of that night was spent, but we do know how Mr. Arnold and Mr. Wilson spent the night of December 23rd and into Christmas Eve day. According to Rachel's mother, Fran, quote, the dads of those girls went down to that shopping center armed with shotguns, guarding that car. They didn't want anything to happen to it. Little did anyone know was that come Christmas Eve morning, a letter would arrive at Tommy and Rachel's home. A letter that begged more questions than it provided any answer. I think I prefer Christmas Eve as opposed to Christmas when you get right down to it. It's that anticipatory excitement that always gets me, that thrill throughout the day, looking forward to what all the day, the evening, and what the next day holds. When the various loved ones of Rachel, Renee, and Julie woke up on December 24th, 1974, though, I doubt they experienced the same thrill one usually revels in throughout on Christmas Eve day. Since the Fort Worth Police Department had determined the three girls must have run away of their own volition, they didn't think it necessary to examine the Oldsmobile for any clues, any odd details, or any evidence when they returned to Seminary South that day. Instead, without even a cursory dusting for fingerprints, the police nonchalantly handed the car over to Tommy, Rachel's husband, and sent him on his way. I wonder if... It was after that bizarre relinquishing of the Oldsmobile that Tommy, arriving to his empty house, wondering where his wife was, I wonder if that's when he opened his mailbox. Because at some point during that December 24th morning, Tommy Trelisa received a letter. There are several factors of the letter, its contents, hell, even its envelope, that you should be aware of because they are, out and out and in a word, strange. For one, the return address on the envelope has been something of a mystery all its own throughout the years. Calling it a return address is also generous. All that was fully legible was the name Rachel in a series of numbers, supposedly a zip code. This zip code has been a point of contention for decades, It was blurred, smudged, possibly because the writer had used a pen to write on the envelope. At first glance, the zip code seemed to read 76083. Except, oddly, the three was written backwards. The zip code 76088 belongs to a city in Texas called Weatherford, which is located about 35 minutes away. None of the families, though, had any connection to Weatherford. It was also theorized that the zip code was written incorrectly, and the sender meant to write out 76483, which would belong to the town of Throckmorton, which was much further away, 127 miles northwest in distance, about a two-hour's drive. Calling Throckmorton a town also feels generous. It's minuscule, with just 828 residents as per the 2010 census, 
and is only 1.7 square miles in size. No one could imagine what someone in Throckmorton had to do in connection with their missing girls. Or perhaps the zip code had been stamped on, not written out. Maybe that explained its messy illegibility. If that was the case, maybe the zip code really was supposed to read 76083. 76083 is a zip code belonging to the town of Eliasville, a town so small, its municipality status had since dissolved and has since been deemed an unincorporated community for its 60-some residents. Eliasville, it should be noted, is roughly 106 miles away from Fort Worth, an almost two-hour drive. If no one could imagine what Throckmorton had to do with the missing girls, the families had even less of an idea what role someone in Eliasville was playing in their current waking nightmare. Because the contents of the letter, once opened, revealed that whoever had sent the letter, they certainly did have something to do with Rachel, Renee, and Julie's inexplicable disappearance. Inside the envelope was a single sheet of unlined paper that was folded in a strange way because it was larger than the envelope itself. The message was written in pencil, which was strange given that the envelope had used a pen to address itself. On the paper was the briefest of messages. It read, quote, I know I'm going to catch it, but we had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in Sears' upper lot. Love, Rachel. In the subsequent years, those who knew Rachel adamantly deny that she could have written the letter. The large handwriting slanted to the right and almost childish in its scrawl didn't at all resemble her own handwriting. Stranger still, the envelope had been addressed to Thomas A. Trelisa, and almost no one, and certainly not Rachel, his wife, called Tommy by his given name of Thomas. But how then, or perhaps why, even who, had known to use his middle initial? There was also something odd about the sign-off, too. Whoever had written the note seemed to have originally misspelled Rachel. Where the L should have been, it appeared the author first wrote an additional and unnecessary E, but obviously tried to fix their mistake by going over the E and hurriedly changing it into an L. If Rachel had written the note, surely she wouldn't have misspelled her own name. Something that also stuck out to the family, the 10 cent stamp on the opposite corner of the envelope across from the bizarre return address, it had been postmarked that day. Nothing about this letter felt right to anyone. To the police, however, the letter only substantiated their initial belief. This, to them, was merely more proof that the girls had, in fact, run off of their own free will. Much has been said about the way the Fort Worth police handled this case from the beginning. And since that Christmas week, they have tried ever so carefully 
to rectify the missteps they took, to rewrite the story. The families have long since stated that because the police treated the case like a couple of girls running away, the investigation was hampered from the start and wasn't given its due diligence until those crucial first few hours and days had long passed. The police, of course, deny this. But Tamara Gaunt, writing for Medium, picked up some pretty damning nuggets from news reports immediately made public after the girls' disappearances. From her piece, quote, an article published in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram the day after the disappearance specifically reported the police were looking for the girls, but had no, quote, reason to suspect foul play. A few days later, the police were slightly less dismissive, telling the paper they, quote, weren't sure whether or not foul play was involved. Four months later, an article in the Cuero Daily Record also reports the police originally thought the girls were runaways. The dread the families felt in those first few days, well, I imagine it's something the police started to feel once they realized how wrong their assumptions were and how, on their watch, three girls had seemingly vanished into thin air and they barely did a thing to search for them in those most crucial of hours, days, and weeks when they first disappeared. It really needs to be noted that it was the investigative efforts of the Arnold, Wilson, and Mosley families that first started to bring in tips about what had taken place inside Seminary South on December 23rd, not necessarily the efforts of Fort Worth police. Thanks to the family's efforts and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reporting on the girls' disappearance within the first few days, word about the mysterious vanishing of three local girls began to spread. The families conducted extensive searches of their own, canvassed all throughout the Fort Worth area, and showered the city in hundreds of missing persons posters, all showcasing the three smiling faces of the 17, 14, and 9-year-old girls. The three smiling faces began to crop up throughout the county, throughout the state, and slowly throughout the country. One of the first tips that came in was from a young man who claimed that he had been friends with Rachel and that he'd actually spoken with her on the day of their disappearance. He told investigators that he too had been at Seminary South on December 23rd, and when he noticed Rachel in a record store inside the mall, he stopped to chat. He confirmed Renee and Julie had been with her, but claimed there was someone else with the girls as well. A man, though this acquaintance couldn't quite nail down a description of him. There was the alleged sighting called in by a watchman who worked nights at Alcon Laboratories, a Swiss-founded medical company that kept its American headquarters just down the road from the, from the mall. He told authorities that sometime during the night of December 23rd, he had witnessed something odd. A car had pulled into the Alcon parking lot. And inside the car, the watchman had seen two men and three girls.
Nothing ever came from this particular tip, though. Another tip, this time, came from a ticketing agent at one of the local bus stations. He claimed that on December 24th, the day after the girls were last seen, he was approached by a similar pack of three girls. He alleged that the girls asked him about ticket prices, as well as a number of other destinations. What stuck out to him, though, was one destination in particular that they inquired about. Houston, the same city the letter sent to Tommy Trelisa had mentioned. Police, however, didn't look further into this tip. They claimed that it wasn't reliable enough. Throughout the end of 1974 and into 1975, a number of other tips came in. Tips that only added to the family's fervent belief that something terrible had happened to their girls. One tip came from a witness that claimed they had seen a mall security guard driving around in a patrol car outside of the Sears and that he had had three girls in the back seat of the patrol car with him. There were calls from witnesses at the mall that claimed that they had seen the girls at grocery stores, gas stations, and convenience stores all throughout Texas. Crueler still, anonymous phone calls were made to each family at times claiming to be one of the missing girls. During this time, discarded women's clothes were found in a town called Justin, 25 miles away from Fort Worth. Believing that they might somehow be connected to the missing girls, a forensics team was called in to no avail. The clothes didn't belong to Rachel, Renee, or Julie. On March 13, 1975, a truly chilling tip came in one that had never been reported directly to the police. Instead, the Vernon Daily Record reported it. In their report, they shared that an elderly woman, who was and still is unidentified, had gone into three different stores and approached three different sales associates to share her concern about something she had witnessed in the parking lot. She told each clerk that she had seen a man forcibly putting a girl or young woman inside a yellow pickup truck with lights on top of it near Buddy's grocery store in the mall on December 23rd. Upon closer inspection, this woman claimed that she saw two other girls inside, as well as another man. When police learned of this account, they publicly requested the woman to come forward so that they could interview her. This woman, though, has never done so. No one has ever discovered who she was. Frustrated with the constant goose chases and dead ends, in the spring of 1975, a private investigator by the name of John Swaim was hired by the Arnold, Wilson, and Mosley families. Swaim was everything Texas claims to be. Braggadocious, big game talking, full of swagger and spitfire. He was a man unafraid of attention, loved to make headlines, and loved press conferences even more. He believed befriending and utilizing the media would pressure the Fort Worth police into action, certainly more action than they had yet taken in regards to the missing girls. Swaim claimed to have dozens of anonymous sources, and tips generated from these unnamed individuals led him all over Texas. Most of these, though, ended fruitlessly. In April of that year, he claimed a source had tipped him off that the missing trio had been killed and transported elsewhere. The source alleged that the girls' bodies could be found in a bayou out in Port Lavaca, 
five hours journey down to the Texan coast. After days of searching and with at least 100 volunteers, Swaim had to admit defeat. No sign of the girls was ever discovered there. A few months later in August, Swaim did stumble upon a lead that seemed more full of potential than any other that he had gotten. He had learned through the grapevine that a local man, 28 years old, had been making a series of obscene phone calls to girls in the area. After doing some digging, Swaim learned that this man was an employee at a store in Fort Worth that Rachel had applied to work at just before Christmas, 1974. And wouldn't you know it, this creep was using his position to rifle through the job applications of girls, or even use their references, to call them, whispering filthy, horrifying things to them before abruptly hanging up. It was a pattern that he had used on six female applicants before he was discovered. Stranger, still, this man had lived in the neighborhood Rachel had grown up in, the same one her parents were living in at the time. He had only moved out of the area a short while before she got married to Tommy. It was promising. Seemed possible. And it led nowhere. In 1976, an oil drilling crew out in Alvord, 50 miles away from Fort Worth, came upon a grisly discovery. Three sets of human remains were unearthed in an oil field. Swaim raced out to the site, ready to compare the skeletons against girls' dental records and various x-rays in their medical files. Again, though, to no avail. One of the bodies belonged to a teenage boy, and the other two were ruled out as matches for any of the girls. And so, time plodded on. There was the psychic from Hawaii who called Fort Worth police, claiming that she had had a vision that the girls would be found in an oil well, but she couldn't tell them where. A police officer at George Hudson spoke to the Star-Telegram in 1978, where he simultaneously claimed investigators had gone to the ends of the earth for every lead. But in the same breath, he lamented the fact that, quote, we've never even gotten them off the parking lot, and that he didn't, quote, know what else we can do. Then, in 1979, John Swain, well, he was found dead. The circumstances of Swain's death are curious, curiouser still in context of his involvement with the missing Fort Worth trio. Swain is said to have overdosed on a drug cocktail, perhaps an attempt at self-soothing through the reportedly bitter divorce he was going through. Ultimately, his death was ruled a suicide, and apparently, as he had arranged prior to, in the event of his death, Swaim had ordered all of his case files, his research, his various notes, his contacts, and anonymous sources, all of his materials as a private investigator, were to be destroyed following his passing, including everything he had gathered on the disappearance of Rachel, Renee, and Julie. Anything within the files that could have helped the investigation... This time, it was lost to fire, not to time. The investigation seemed to slow for a time following Swain's death, slowed to the point that some worried it was finally growing cold. In 1981, another set of remains was located in Brazoria County, some four and a half hours away from Fort Worth, and once again on the Texas coastline. A month after testing, though, 
it was clear that the remains were not of the missing girls. In that same year, though, seven years after the girls had last been seen, a new witness emerged. A man came forward, claiming that he had been in the parking lot on the day the girls disappeared, and he, too, had had an unsettling encounter. He had seen another man pushing and shoving a girl into his car. Actually, it was a van. Concerned for the girl's safety, this witness claims that he hurried over, but the other man was having none of it. The man said the matter was, quote, a family dispute, and that the would-be Good Samaritan should, quote, stay out of it. Investigators, though, could never corroborate the new witness's story. 1995 marked the 20th year that had passed since anyone had seen Rachel Trilisa, Renee Wilson, or Julie Mosley. 20 years is a long time. And in 20 years, desperation and unfailing hope can do a lot of things to people. Warped things. Like turn a family against itself. In 1995, a new private investigator was approached, this time by Rusty Arnold, Rachel's younger brother who had been 11 at the time of her disappearance. Rusty was working on behalf of the three families, and he approached a private investigator named Dan James. Dan James, as luck would have it, had been following the disappearance closely on his own time since 1975, and he was happy to help. So happy, in fact, that according to Craig Berry from True Crime Articles, quote, James declined to accept any payment for any additional work because he was investigating purely out of kindheartedness, even offering a $25,000 reward of his own money to anyone who could provide pertinent information that would bring resolution to the case. Over the next five years with Dan James by his side, the two seemed to unearth rather shocking claims, information they allegedly gleaned from sources that of course remained anonymous and seemingly upended everything and anything anyone had thought about the case. In 2000, speaking to the Star-Telegram, the two finally revealed their bombshell. They believed Rachel was alive. In the interview, the two shared that they had every reason to believe, quote, Rachel visits Fort Worth during the Christmas season every year. James was careful with his words, but he maintained that someone is, quote, shrouding and manufacturing evidence in what he says was at first in an effort to keep the two older girls away. Now he thinks only Rachel survives. He is evasive about what he thinks happened or who he believes can be held accountable. Further quoting, I believe that that person facilitates and maintains an effort to keep Rachel Arnold Trilisa away from Fort Worth. I believe that Renee Wilson is not alive. I believe that something dreadfully wrong, and probably a fatality, occurred involving Julie Ann Mosley. Rusty, a bit more coy, only had to say to the Star-Telegram that he believes, in accordance with James's theory, that, quote, someone close to the girl's had something to do with the disappearance. That someone, as it turns out, they believed was Deborah. Deborah Arnold had her own interview with the Star-Telegram following Dan James and Rusty's exclusive. On January 9th, 2000, she stated, quote, I know he blames me. I know Rusty thinks I had something to do with it. 
Rusty thinks this letter that Tommy got the next day, he thinks I wrote it. I didn't write this letter. I don't know who did. I don't know what happened to my sister. Maybe white slavery. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I have nothing to hide. It's an interesting theory to consider, given the unique entanglement of relationships between Tommy and Deborah and Rachel. Tommy Trelisa, he who once was allegedly Deborah's fiance, then ended up her brother-in-law, married to her little sister. But was the broken relationship between Tommy and Deborah one that she would have murdered over? And not just murdered her own sister, but two other innocent girls. It doesn't quite check for me, but it seemed to raise more questions on the inside than anyone had expected. Two days after Deborah's interview on January 11th, 2000, another shocking statement was shared with the Star-Telegram. This time, a letter. A letter from members of the Mosley, Wilson, and yes, the Arnold family. It read, Dear Deborah, we read your statement in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on January 9th, 2000. You indicated that you, quote, had nothing to hide. If your statement is true, we beg and plead with you to fully cooperate with the Fort Worth Police Department and the FBI. Please complete the polygraph testing and answer all questions. Deborah, please keep in mind you also have a sister missing. Respectfully, Rayanne Mosley, Rusty Arnold, Judy Wilson, and Richard Wilson. After that letter, suspicion has since lingered over Deborah, despite however implausible it may be. There has never been any credible reason to believe that she was involved with the girl's disappearance, especially given that she had declined to join Rachel on her shopping trip and she was with Tommy Trelisa at home when he discovered the mysterious letter the morning after. It's, like I said, desperation and hope will drive a person to do a lot of previously unimaginable things. It was one year later, though, in 2001, that renewed energy, new blood, and fresh eyes were brought to the investigation. In January of that year, Tom Bochner assumed the role as the lead investigator for the case, reopening it fully. Bochner's expertise as a homicide detective seemed ideal for such a frustrating, alarmingly cooling case. He didn't have to wait long for a new lead, because it came just four months later in April 2001. And it didn't reflect well on Fort Worth police. In April 2001, a man named Bill Hutchins came forward for, apparently, the second time. In 1974, Hutchins had been working as a police officer, and he moonlighted as a security guard at the Sears and Seminary South on occasion. He was working in that capacity on the day the girls disappeared, or rather, the night. At around 11.30 p.m. on December 23rd, Hutchins told investigators that he had an unsettling encounter with another security guard. The reason and impetus aren't publicly known, but as Hutchins tells it, he and the other security guard exchanged, quote, harsh words, words harsh enough that Hutchins approached the pickup truck the security guard was sitting in. 
From Tamara Gaines' Medium report, quote, According to Mr. Hutchins, the youngest girl was sitting next to the driver, an older girl was in the middle, and the oldest and largest was at the end next to the door. Described them as smiling and laughing, appearing to be there of their own free will. According to Mr. Hutchins, he apologized for the language he'd used during the confrontation, and they drove away. It was quite the tale to tell, but investigators were suspicious. Why had Hutchins waited so many decades to come forward? As it turned out, he hadn't. Hutchins explained that at the time of the disappearance, he had approached police and told them about the encounter. They, however, never followed up with him. One has to wonder if it's because the police were just too busy believing the girls were simply runaways. Though police were able to find both the exact security guard Hutchins named and others who could corroborate his story, it was, yet again, somewhat of a dead end. The security guard in question, obviously, denied everything Hutchins claimed, and for what felt like the thousandth time, investigators could go no further with the lead. Since 2001, various other possibilities pertaining to the fate of the Fort Worth missing trio have been explored under Botchner's lead. The mall passer, a man named Mike DeBartleben, who was, quote, a convicted kidnapper, rapist, counterfeiter, known to pass off counterfeit money at malls and shopping plazas, all located near interstate highways, and he was later suspected of being a serial killer. He was considered as having played a role in the three girls' disappearance. There have been false confessions made, countless of Jane Doe's discovered and later determined to have different identities. Botchner has since spoken out to say, quote, he believes the girls left the mall with someone they trusted. He stated, we can say that they were at one point seen with one individual, but we believe there was more than one involved. Any more information than that, though, isn't privy to the public. Countless possibilities, theories, ideas, even vague what-ifs have been explored. Almost every conceivable one has been examined and raised over the past nearly half century since Rachel, Renee, and Julie walked into the Seminary South shopping center. We just don't know if they walked out. The last latest development in the case occurred in 2018 at Benbrook Lake, located 10 miles away from Fort Worth. Working on a tip, police excavated two cars from the water's depths under the belief that the cars had played a role in the three girls' disappearance. Yet, the same song seemed to play again. Nothing came from the supposed lead. There are a lot of suspects, theories, and discoveries that can be made in 46 years. But there are also a lot of hashtag questions that can be asked, too. And when it comes to this case, it really is an example of having more questions than answers. Hashtag question number one. What exact time did the three girls arrive at Seminary South Center on December 23rd, 1974? Did someone start following them when they arrived, or did someone notice them while they were shopping? What stores did the girls visit? 
why hasn't this information been made publicly available in the event that it might jog someone's memory who was at the mall and in one of those stores that day? Why are we so certain about what Renee and Julie wore that day, but we have almost next to no idea about what Rachel wore? What time did the girls bring their purchases back to the car? Did someone at that time then start to notice and follow them? Did the girls ever go back into the mall after they dropped their packages at the car, or were they overpowered then? If they did go back into the mall, what time was that? The family arrived at the mall at 6 p.m. after the girls were supposed to be home by 4. If we can assume that after they stopped at the Army-Navy store and then they arrived at the mall, if that was around 12.30 or 1, the girls had about three hours to shop before they were expected home. So what time were the girls abducted then? There were so many sightings of various girls getting into, getting forced into, or simply already being in a large car that day. More often than not, it's been reported by witnesses that they saw either vans or pickup trucks when reporting their sightings. We already know memory is a fickle thing, but that's usually for details. The larger overarching theme of a memory is what really will stick and stand the test of time. So what then are the odds that so many different people all saw some group of girls getting into a large car with at least one man? Is there any validity to the report that Rachel saw and spoke to an acquaintance at the mall and that there was a man with the girls? Is there any validity to the report by the night watchman at Alcon Laboratories who claimed a car entered the parking lot with girls in the back seat on the same night that the girls vanished? Is there any validity to the ticketing agent at the bus station who claimed that he was approached by three girls wanting to go to Houston the morning after the girls' disappearance? Why did the elderly woman who spoke to three different store clerks about seeing girls being forced into a pickup never come forward? Why did the families wait until 11 p.m. to call the police? When Fran took Rusty through the mall looking for the girls, had the girls already left the premises, or is there a chance that they were still inside the mall, but being held there by someone unable to answer? We already know that this is a tale as old as time, but it still needs to be asked. Why were the Fort Worth police so adamant that the girls were simply runaways? Why didn't the police even dust the old mobile for fingerprints? Why were they so quick to release the car into Tommy's custody? Who sent the bizarre letter the morning after the girls disappeared? Why did they send it? Who wrote the letter? Where was the letter sent from? Why was the letter addressed so formally on the envelope? But also, how did the writer even know that Tommy's middle initial started was an A? Did they themselves already know this piece of information or did they get it from Rachel? Was the letter written by one of the girls, forcibly or willingly? Why was the envelope addressed with a pen, but the letter itself was written with a pencil. Did the writer accidentally misspell Rachel's name? How did the writer know where the Oldsmobile was? What time was the letter sent in order for it to arrive at the Trelisa house the morning after the girls disappeared? 
This letter is the only known piece of forensic evidence in the entire case. In 2000, DNA testing proved that the DNA on the letter wasn't Rachel's. So, really, who wrote the letter? And whose DNA is on the letter? Did John Swaim ever make discernible headway into the girl's case, or was his involvement more about keeping the case in the public eye? Why did Swaim insist on having all of his files and all of his materials destroyed after his death? If Swain, is Swain's death at all related to his involvement in his investigation into the girl's disappearance? Did the man who was making obscene phone calls to girls in the area, did he have anything to do with the disappearance? Where in the hell did Dan James get the idea that Rachel is still alive and visits Fort Worth every Christmas? What information did he have that suggested to Rusty that Deborah had something to do with their sister's disappearance. Did Deborah have anything to do with the disappearance of her sister and two friends? Maybe a better question is this. Is there any reason to believe that Tommy Trelisa had anything to do with his wife's disappearance? Is there any validity to the idea that Deborah suggested in the 2000s that her sister, Renee, and Julie were sold into sex slavery? Were any of the men seen by witness reports actually one and the same? Because again, what are the odds that so many people reported such a similar sighting and there not be a shred of truth throughout all of them? Who was the security guard Bill Hutchins exchanged harsh words with and why did they argue? Were the three girls in the security guard's car the Fort Worth trio? If so... Why were they in the car? Did they know the security guard somehow? Had he scammed them into getting in the car, leading them to believe that they were safe with a person of authority? Why didn't Fort Worth police follow up on this lead sooner than 2001? It's a widely held belief today that the girls knew their abductor. If so, who abducted them? Why? Had anyone else joined the shopping trip that day? If Terry, perhaps, had gone along? If Deborah had agreed to go instead of staying in bed? If Julie never got permission to go? Would this be a story I'm telling you today? Someone knows what happened to these girls. So why hasn't anyone come forward nearly half a century later? Where are Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julie Mosley? If the girls are dead, who killed them and why? And if the girls, or any one of them, are still somehow alive, then how have they been hidden away for almost 50 years? In some ways, I wonder how the families of the Fort Worth trio have had the strength to revisit Christmas each year. Those of family who are left anyway. Rachel's father passed six months after his daughter disappeared. More recently, so too have Julie and Renee's mothers. Three parents, all going to the grave without ever knowing what happened to their girls. Rachel's mother, Fran, still remains. Still in the Fort Worth area, 
alongside Rusty, who works as a contractor and spends his free time investigating his sister's disappearance. Rusty has since denounced the theory that his sister, Deborah, had anything to do with Rachel's disappearance, a belief that had estranged him from both his mother and remaining sister for some time. Today, though, they are a family united again. Rachel's husband, Tommy Trelisa, all 21 years of age, him, didn't seem to handle the investigation well, and honestly, who can blame him? He would eventually leave Fort Worth, remarry, have children, and try to leave the past behind. The thing that strikes me most about this case is how crucial a role time really has played in it, even as time moves the case further and further from that day in December, when three girls took off on a fun afternoon of holiday shopping. These are families trapped in time. Three girls trapped in time, bordering on being forgotten in time, except, save, every December. Because every December, Rachel's mother brings out three illuminated angel lawn decorations, carefully placing them on the green of her front lawn. Three angels for three girls. Three girls who are still somehow missing. The gift these families want this year, have wanted every year for the past 46, is an answer. Where are the Fort Worth missing trio? Where is Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julie Mosley? If you have any information on the disappearance of the missing trio, please call the Fort Worth Police Department at 817-469-8477. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe if you haven't already. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest members of the DAW Patreon crew, Laura Parisi and Sarah, aka Cookie White. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast to see what level of support might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode as well as have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. There was some exciting news that I wanted to share in that DAW was ranked as the 217th most popular true crime podcast in the entire country, according to Spotify Wrapped. That off the bat might seem like not a big deal, but given that DAW launched only on June 1st of this year, and I am a one-woman show here running the writing, editing, producing, social media, merch, all of it, that's quite the deal. I am so grateful to have so many people that have tuned in, listened to, subscribed, and just simply come along for this crazy dark as hell ride. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, 
all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com or head over to darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.